Today's episode is brought to you by Anbara Salam's haunting novel, Hazardous Spirits, called A Darkly Sumptuous Love Letter by Francine Toon, who adds that it's guaranteed to give you goosebumps. Hazardous Spirits is cloaked in the moody, beguiling backdrop of 20th century Scotland, bringing a sparkling sense of period detail and dry humor to the life of a young woman whose world is unsettled by mediums and spirits, revealing the devastating secrets that ghosts from the past can tell when given the voice to do so. Hazardous Spirits is available now from Tin House. I'm excited to share today's conversation with one of my favorite living writers, Banu Kapil, about the reissue of her long out-of-print Incubation, A Space for Monsters, the only book of hers I hadn't read, a book that previously you could only find on eBay for hundreds of dollars, and which is arriving anew in the United States and for the first time in the UK in a revised form, and a revised form that's different in the United States than in the UK. We use incubation, both incubations, as a lens through which to look at Banu's work as a whole across her career. And I'm far from alone in finding Banu's work incredibly important and vital and cherishing it and her relationship to it in the world, whether in the world of performance or poetry or ritual or teaching. So many past guests on the show, whether C.A. Conrad, Sawako Nakayasu, Brandon Shimoda, Megan Fernandez, Talia Field, Gabrielle Seville, Yunsung Kim, or Sophia Samatar, just to name a few of them, are likewise writers who cherish Banu's work and or find it formative in their own. You'll quickly notice today how listening to Banu talk is entering a universe of language that really exists on its own terms, on different terms. I think of my conversation with Teju Cole and how I felt I just had to leave all the silences in when normally I would take them out because they were speaking, that we could hear Teju in them. And, and here too, the way Banu speaks spontaneously, but sometimes with an incredible seeming craftedness using phrases from the body, anything from the word proprioceptive or defamiliarizing us to language with phrases like pericardial quilt. Her, her books are extremely attentive to both language and the body, and yet their forms defy the shapes we expect from language and the body. So perhaps it's fitting that one of the long-standing classes she taught on hybrid writing at Naropa, she and her students renamed The Monster. And we talk about monsters today, among many, many other things, from immigration to the immigrant heart, to questions of home and belonging, to gendered and racialized violence in the US, UK, and India, and how the traumas of migration are somaticized in the body and to questions of failure and creating works with tools that fail us as we create them. Speaking of failure, I've 
noticed over the years, and I've been thinking about this conversation for years now, that almost everyone pronounces Banu's last name Kapil, like an orange peel. And yet the rare times I've heard her say it, most notably in a performance in the voice of her father, it sounded more like Kapil to me. Of course, I asked Banu the proper way to say it, and yet I didn't anticipate that the answer wouldn't be straightforward. To settle it, she goes to her mother and takes me with her and asks. So here is our exchange. And let's resolve this once and for all. I'm just going to go and ask my mother one minute. You, you're coming with me. Okay, great. So we can document this. Okay. <laughs> I love that. Hi, Panda. Can I ask you a question? Can you say my name? Just say my name. Bhanu Kapil. That's not my name. Say it again. Bhanu Kapil. Kapil. Bhanu Kapil. Okay. All right. Okay. Kapil. (laughs) Okay. Did you hear that? Yeah. I know I'm not going to get it perfect, but Kapil is, Kapil is, is close. I'm hearing that emphasis in my mother's Kapil. pronunciation. It's hard to pronounce my first name because our mouths or our soft tissue form didn't form around BH sound. So it sounds like P when we as English, you know, primary English speakers try to, I can't pronounce my own first name, but my father's side would pronounce the last name couple, but Kapil. like... That's how I've I been saying say, it. Yeah, that's one or Kapil or however my mom just said it. A was, lot of Americans or every American I know says Kapil with a long E. Oh, yeah. I and love that. You love that. <laughs> I'm like, carry on. Because today's conversation is partly engaging with failure as praxis. And because I discovered just before we began talking together that I was pronouncing it all this time like her father, and yet having just heard her mother speak it directly to us, I felt like I had to at least try to speak it for the first time in a new way to honor her mother's way. And I'm sure, I'm confident I'm doing it wrong, just as Banu herself says she is. And even though she loves how we all mispronounce it, I thought at least I could say it less wrong, if wrong nonetheless. The same day we talked, that night, late at night, with everyone in her household fast asleep, her mother included, Bonner records in very hushed tones an extended reading for the bonus audio archive. She not only reads from many things, everything from Annie Erno's book, I Remain in Darkness, about Erno's own visits to her mother in a care home, to pass between the cover's guest Yun Sung Kim's piece called Asian, to the co-written book Tone by Kate Zambreno and Sophia Samatar, to Bono's own notebooks reading recent entries about impasse. She reads all of these things for us, but also talks to us very intimately about the meaningfulness of each of them too. This joins bonus material from so many past guests from Dion Brand, Christina Sharp, Alice Oswald, Jory Graham, Natalie Diaz, Lely Longsoldier, Kava Akbar, and many more. 
and the bonus audio is only one possible benefit of joining the Between the Covers community as a listener supporter. Every supporter can join our brainstorm of future guests, and every listener supporter gets the resource-rich email with each episode. And then there are a ton of other things to choose from, from the bonus audio to the Tin House early readership subscription, receiving 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public. You can check all this out and much more at patreon.com slash between the covers. And now for today's conversation with Banu Kapil. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is the uncategorizable Banu Kapil, whose work, often called poetry, also arises from or incorporates performance and ritual, fiction and mythology, history and memory. She grew up in West London, moved to the United States in the 90s, getting an MA in English literature at SUNY Brockport and taught creative writing, performance art, and contemplative practice for two decades at Naropa's Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics. She also taught on the low-residency MFA program at Goddard College and at the University of Vermont, where she's co-piloting a doctoral program in transdisciplinary leadership there. Her books include The Vertical Interrogation of Strangers, Humanimal, A Project for Future Children, Schizophrene, Bon and Banlieue, of which Su Yen Juliet Lee said, trying to offer a clear, critical comment on Banu Kapil's Bon and Banlieue is particularly challenging because it so stridently seeks to sidestep the rational, hierarchical, closed system imaginations which generate race riots, which churn women's bodies into sexual fodder and carcasses tossed out of vans which demand that we see mental illness as an individual disorder rather than as a human soul crying out amidst inhuman cultural paroxysms. Centered around a race riot in 1979, London, Kapil's text belies the notion of fixed centers or single origins of cultural violence. Instead, she offers a variety of emotional, psychological, and spiritual loci around which her text coalesces. To cry out, to fail, to rise like diesel smoke in a hot summer wind. Long a much beloved and iconic figure in the world of experimental poetics, it was with Banu's return to the UK in 2019 and the publication of her first book in England, How to Wash a Heart, that suddenly the larger world seemed to take notice. Kapil received a year-long fellowship at the University of Cambridge, where she remained and became a fellow at Churchill College. 
She was elected as a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature. She won the Wyndham Campbell Prize. And How to Wash a Heart was the winner of the T.S. Eliot Prize in Poetry, whose past winners include Anne Carson, Alice Oswald, Sharon Olds, and Derek Walcott. Sandeep Parmar says of her first UK-only publication, Banu Kapil's How to Wash a Heart catches the thinning smile of that ancient human ritual, hospitality, in a time of increasing hostility against migrants, Kapil demonstrates how survival tunes the guest to its host with devastating intimacy. It's exhausting to be a guest in somebody else's house forever. In these lines, an ancestral trauma pours from the heart of the unwelcome across a war zone, a threshold into a spare bedroom, edging its occupant out. Ultimately, what Kapil teaches us is that although the heart might be where desire, gratitude, even love exist, it is an organ to which, like a country, we may never fully belong. Manu joins us today to talk about the new editions of her long-out-of-print classic of diasporic literature, Incubation, A Space for Monsters, a book appearing in the UK for the first time with Prototype and returning to the US after a long absence with Kelsey Street Press, with new but different material written by Banu in each edition. Yunsong Kim says in the new US edition, in incubation we are offered a migration narrative that contends with histories of the colonized, in which an immigrant, ignorant to the violence that is the United States, arrives to give birth to a monster. Kapil constructs a loose tool for cyborg monster travelers, for those who have assimilated and are suffering because of their insides, and for those who cannot adapt or refuse to, and thus do not survive. She reminds us that one's becoming is not and never our own, but rather torturously prescripted. And Ocean Vong adds, I read everything Kapil writes, and each time am left in awe at her erudite dexterity to see the book, not as a medium of mere knowing, but of questing. Here she casts the dialectical inquiry between continuity and rupture, deploying cyborgs and monsters to overlay and amplify existential questions for the Anthropocene. The result is an ambitious work of complex yet coherent semiotic prowess I can't wait to teach from. Welcome to Between the Covers, Banu Kapil. Thank you, David. Such a beautiful introduction. So when you first wrote Incubation, the book of yours that most directly engages with America, your move to the United States, mm. your move to the United States was meant to be one of never looking back, of leaving England forever. In your previous book, The Vertical Interrogation of Strangers, where you interviewed Indian women in the UK, the US, and India, there's the line, if England is a test, then I failed it. And across your books, we learn that despite being a British-born UK citizen to Indian immigrant parents, the country never saw you as part of it as English, whether the race riots of 1979, where you remember saying to yourself, I'm no longer a child, and wondering if this thought were your first sentence, or the anti-immigrant speeches of Enoch Powell, or the fraught dynamics of your father, 
or as you detail in, in the new UK edition of Incubation, that after a one-year stint in the United States, you came back to England, applied for an entry-level editorial position, and then were told afterwards we would never hire someone like you. Then you left for good, or seemingly so. But here we are now, me in Portland, you in England again, 20-some years after your departure. And in our email correspondence over the years, you told me that How to Wash a Heart was intended as a dart or arrow, something that could arc through the air and lodge in an English space, something that could make possible your reconnection to your birthplace or home. And now from this English space, we're discussing the reissue of your most America-centric book, its return is a doubling, not only because this new U.S. edition is different than the original, with an introduction by Pass Between the Covers guest, Yun Sung Kim, and a new coda by you, but that this is the first time it's coming out in the U.K., and the U.K. edition has a different coda, and it's a coda addressed to an English audience. So the new edition exists in two forms. But also incubation in some ways is a doubling or inversion of your experience in England with your avatar, the fictional Lalu, now as the parent immigrant coming to the U.S. to give birth to a monster. Likewise, there is a person, a so-called medical curiosity from the 19th century who shares Lalu's name, who was in a sense a duplicate within himself with an extra pair of legs dangling from him. In that spirit of the monstrous double, I'm going to uncharacteristically start with a question from someone else presented in the aura of my preface to make a double out of my thoughts and those of Kate Zambreno. Hello, dear Banu. I am recording this in a car with my elderly dog on my lap watching my two small children pee behind a tree <laughs> at a Soho playground while their father tries to keep guard. Um, so that's my setting. Hello, how are you? Um, I think of incubation mythically as the work you were writing when thinking of new parenting. I have this vision of you in a library pregnant is that correct that's that's the vision I hold in my head so I'm wondering what is it like rereading the work and what was it like writing that work while thinking of this other new life and then what is it like rereading it now and I guess my other question, sorry, follow-up is you keep on writing to Bon in Entre Bon, in you know, more notes towards Bon. Are you still are you still writing through incubation? And does this republication jostle jostle something something new for you? Okay, love you. My my youngest has just stolen a daffodil uh-huh. and is now running around the tree with it. <laughs> I'll leave you with that. The daffodil, like the daffodils that you plant as memorial in Bon and Bunliu. Oh, number one, there has been a surge of norepinephrine. Is that a hormone <laughs> through my entire bloodstream? 
to hear Kate Zambrano's uh, voice in the middle or before this podcast, uh, Vortex, has truly consumed the possible language that we share and can never share, comma, David. I'm sorry, Kate Zambrano and her elderly dog, Janae. I recently came across a photograph that someone took from an administrative building at Naropa University, where Kate and her partner, John Winkler, uh, as part of the collaborative La Janae, had hung fuchsia, not human size, but beyond the human, um, fuchsia wombs, fuchsia um, uterine tissue on hooks from a beam above the place where the bursar or the human resources or other kinds of um, talent, talent being the wrong word, reside in the university, uh, just catty corner to the Allen Ginsberg Library and above the tree where Allen Ginsberg used to give his lectures on William Blake. So number one, um, I see in this strange, uh, mordant, belated photograph that ruptured uh, a dormant feed. I see Kate in a chair and I am behind her and my hands are on her shoulders. I too am wearing fuchsia. Kate, am I a womb? Are you? Anyway, we went through that in 2011, so I won't go back there. But number two, wow. Uh, Number three, oh my God. Uh, Number four, Enoch Powell and the archive. Maybe, maybe as a way to build a relationship to these saturated notes and pre-memory or lagging moment of the book. Maybe I can just maybe I can just begin with Enoch Powell and the vector of the monstrous in incubation, the moment that England, or so it felt, experienced me. For me, in a way that comes a month before my own birth. And I'm talking slowly because I'm just trying to gauge how much of this story I can tell, because to tell a story of my body before I was born is also to tell a story of my mother's body, who is sitting in the next room, crocheting a cardinal for a poet friend to be affixed to a navy blue sweater. So I'm not sure that I can tell that part of the story. No, I can't describe what it was that would have made my existence in a womb precarious. But what I can say is that in May 1968, maybe three or four weeks before I was born on June the 21st, 1968, at, let's see, 10.23 a.m., British summertime, Uh, Enoch Powell gave a speech in which, much like his future contemporaries, the British Asian leaders of the Conservative Party, Suella Braverman, Priti Patel et al., in which he called not only for the restriction of immigration or migration into the UK, but also repatriation. And so I've been reading through the archive of Enoch Powell at Churchill College and the Archive Centre, 
And it has been both proprioceptive and also an impasse to read this, um, not what's outside womb and heart and memory, but somehow is the lining, the pericardial uh, quilt that did not cushion, but instead was, I suppose, perforated uh, with stings and bites of many kinds. And so if I have to say what was like the start of, I won't use the word unbelonging, I began to think of the quandary of belonging or unbelonging differently lately. But if I have to think like what is the moment of deflection that found its mate, that found its bride in narrative, an arranged marriage, if you will, um, then it was that. Um, the rivers of blood speech, which I've now touched with my own hands. Um, but even more than that famous document, which is so liquid that it can appear out of the ether and out of electricity at the least touch of your computer or your phone. Um, more than that, I've been reading the letters from a varied public in response to that speech that are so full of um, praise and horror at the condition of 1968 or 1973, um, the smell of goat curry on an ambient breeze and so on. Um, I'm kind of tracking deflection and the memory of early childhood, kind of accelerating up to 1979 through those papers, certainly. Um, and so that's the first thing I want to say, that incubation, my God, has a biography of its own. And at every turn, uh, something like disastrous happens. It disappears, it is broken, it wins something, the prize is rescinded because the judge thinks it's not actually fiction. I become a poet. Um, it is deleted by a friend visiting me one day, it doesn't return, I have to write it again in two weeks while my son is in Montessori. Um, and so on and on and on until the present in which for the first time I feel as if in this UK edition which I have with me here um, that the pages have begun to stick together or they're congregating or assembling and kind of making a book properly for the first time and so maybe that's where I can begin David slash Kate uh, with a memory of a tree um, the conditions of the archive which are fleeting actually um, but which produce a kind of impasse and reverse engineer deflection as a form of epistolatory confidence um, and number three, wow, Kate Sembrano. <laughs> Kate Sembrano. Well, when you were on the Tender Buttons podcast, you talked about the road novel and writer Douglas Martin's original blurb on the original incubation that suggested incubation was a feminist post-colonial on the road. And you said at the time that you embraced the connection with Kerouac, pointed out that you had worked in the Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics at Naropa. And it was uncanny hearing you describe your time in Boulder as we both have spent 
roughly 20 years there, but our times don't overlap at all. When you were describing going to El Chapultepec in Denver for jazz Mm. under the shadow of the baseball stadium, when I went there, there was no stadium. It was a forgotten and haunted part of Denver. Uh, My time in Boulder, the 70s and 80s, was much more a post-60s holdover place, a place of Mork and Mindy and going to yes. going to Naropa to hear Ginsburg and the Nicaraguan poets he would bring during the Sandinista era or his piano duet with the psychologist Arnie Lang. And you arrived, as you recounted in, in Tender Buttons, just after he died. And at one point we're living in a house where he used to store his harmonium. But I wanted to ask you about form and time in relation to the road novel and more generally in thinking of the relative absence of female road narratives. I think of Vanessa Veselka who said, whereas a man on the road might be seen as potentially dangerous, potentially adventurous or potentially hapless. In all cases, the discourse is one of potential. When a man steps onto the road, his journey begins. When a woman steps onto that same road, hers ends. And and Lalu's experience fleeing racialized and gendered violence in the UK is to encounter it really in a different way in the United States. Her experience hitchhiking begins in her own words because it seems glamorous and ultra American and something inconceivable for her to do in England. And yet there is nothing glamorous about the ways the monstrosity of American culture interacts with this brown girl with the red dot between her eyes. But on top of that, I feel like there's something different about the way you engage with time than I would expect in a more normative male rodent novel. There is no sense of destination or quest. There's a drifting quality to the book. You have the line, pilgrimage can be an abortion. Mm. Um, But also I feel like there's a folding back on itself or an inversion, a blurring of who is giving birth and who is being born. We have the Hindu goddess Durga having sex with her male children. And then the line in the book, I want to have sex with what I want to become. And another, I could not stop her from giving birth to herself if I tried. And I think of the opening declarative line of the book, reverse the book in duration, followed by the question, what does that mean? It reminds me of moments in your blog when you say things like, diasporic memory reverses itself to become a void and a bleed a shunt, and a cone. Or with tender buttons where you say, performance is a reversal and then an elaboration. So I guess, thinking of the road narrative, what does it mean that incubation opens with this command to reverse the book in duration? Tell, tell us how you see time or directionality in relationship to incubation. Oh, thank you for such... A rich question, David. As you're speaking, I notice that memories of making or writing the book return. Um, Actually, one of the memories was 
present as soon as we began to speak and you said, um, you stated the obvious that you're in Portland, Oregon, and I'm in, well, I'm in England. I can literally see um, a rose, a blackberry. Let's see, there's a blackbird. I could go on. It's all out there waiting for me. And well, I don't know if it's waiting for, it's just out there. I can see it. But actually, this whole situation began. I'd been in the US, I think, for about a week. And I'd sort of like won this fellowship to SUNY Brockport. Um, and there was a poet there called Tony Piccioni, who was like, I didn't know who he was. Um, but it turned out that Tuesdays and Thursdays would be electrifying um, between like 1990 and 1994. And so I was trying to kind of find a way to kind of prolong my J-1 visa, as it was then called, uh, a visa actually that was de-installed after 9-11. Um, so J-1 visa, you could complete your coursework and then you could get a visa to keep returning if you didn't complete your thesis. Um, and mine was on Salman Rushdie initially, but I had an advisor, Mark Anderson, who disagreed with my reading of the end of satanic verses i would go to his office he would immediately pour himself a scotch and fight with me about postmodernism and vice versa <laughs> um he felt that um it was a void rupture fragmentation and i think at that time i was incubating like the very kind of basic question that would become i think the guiding line maybe for so much of the work that I've done over the last few years which is how will the fragments attract and on a side note Mark Anderson would go go on to run over and kill a graduate student that he was also working with a few years later and it wow. sort of made sense of that disturbed but kind of ecstatic time and um, that was brought to an end by Tony Piccioni who died in 2001 I think and he said, just put together a creative writing thesis and we'll pass you. We'll kind of allow you to complete. Because by that time, I'd had a dream of an owl. In fact, on my first wedding night, uh, I'd been to see an Australian flamenco film. And I had this powerful dream of half owl, half, you know, being, um, what we call human being singing, calling out to me. And I I remember just waking up in Rochester, New York. And I knew at that point, because I think Tony Piccioni had assigned like Carl Jung's The Undiscovered Self, that you should pay attention to dreams of that nature. And I went into the kitchen where I just recently bought like a strange meditation shawl thing that was tattered and also a Rand McNally atlas. And I, I remember looking down the hallway and seeing my husband um, peacefully sleeping, a very nice, pleasant man called Meat Sauce who, you know, would bike to Topps Market in a blizzard to get me, you know, the New York Times and whatever, a steak, um, I can actually eat steak at this time, but like back then, um, when I was menstruating, there's the womb again, Kate. Anyway, everything was fine. And uh, I would watch basketball on a little portable television. 
I was a waitress. I was trying to finish my thesis. And there it was. I stood up from the bed, walked down the corridor, took the Rand McNally atlas in my hands. And I said in my heart, wherever my fingertip lands, that's where I'll go. That's where the owl is calling. Um, and it landed on this place in the atlas called Loveland, Colorado. Um, and that really set up the vector that got me to Colorado. So in fact, back to Kate, like that moment of bibliomancy in the library was actually when I was pregnant, finally in Boulder, Colorado, actually with my second husband. And he was also a very nice husband, but um, I felt dull. I think just pregnancy, probably. Anyway, we don't have to go into that, but I was like a void in between these times and places and still kind of quite new to the commitment of being in the United States permanently, you could say. And I walked up to the library at CU and I also kind of repeated the action and said, whatever my hand lands on as I drift through the stacks, that will be the next book. And that was Humanimal, uh, which took nine years to kind of get through. And during that time, I was trying to write Incubation. Mm. So I'm just trying to track, I suppose, the, the gestures or the energy that kind of dislodged me at the same time um, that I'm reflecting, I suppose, on deflection. And I'm trying to attend to the question about time, but maybe I can just say that like talking in this way, trying to remember writing um, a work that variously disappeared or was deleted or was dropped um, and now has kind of returned at the same moment that I have returned, I suppose. It's just that I feel just the energy maybe of one, these two kinds of uh, gestures, the kind of arc that got me to one place, but also kind of if I have to really go back and think like what is the, what is not what are the sensations that I built the work around, but what was that gesture? You know, when you said Oregon, that was it. The fellowship had begun in SUNY Brockport and there was a mug on the desk of the administrator of the writing lab. My fellowship allowed me to do nothing and just kind of uh, relish this kind of strange, interesting, beautiful experience of Western New York in the fall with the red maple trees and just like dazzling light and freedom. Uh, but also I, I traveled with someone called Sue Smith and she had an assistantship which meant that she had to do 15 hours in the lab. And it was all very confusing. And I remember saying, oh, I'm not doing anything. I'll just split it with you. So I'm not, I'm not totally sure that I was paid, but we split the work because we were British and we had had a Marxist training at Loughborough University and we were ready um, to share life. And 
So that's how I ended up in the writing lab. And it was on Dolores's desk that there was a mug that said Oregon, just the point of the story. And I hope that no one listening thinks that I've completely uh, lost it here, but <laughs> my mind is is trying to like get back there. Yes, the mug with the rainbow that said Oregon. And I became obsessed and that's how it began. And that's how the book begins. I was filled with a desire to go to Oregon and felt that it was there beneath the rainbow that I should write my novel on yellow paper. Mm. Um, and that, that is what I did on a side note with Dolores. Um, although that didn't go so well, I refer you to the U-Haul truck fiasco, um, which I can't totally talk about, but it's the problem of the U-Haul truck that led to me hitchhiking and it all being quite a jumble. Well, in the U.S. edition to the book, there's an afterword by M.G. of Kelsey Street Press that begins with two definitions of incubation, the incubation of eggs and the development of the embryo, but also the incubation of an infection before it manifests as a disease, both time-based in nature. And throughout the book, the book meditates on the difference between a monster and a cyborg and on the nature of monsters with lines like, can't always tell between a cyborg and person, whereas monsters are always identifiable as such by their long black hair and multiple arms retracted into the torso during lovemaking and hitchhiking. But also in your bio in Bon and Banyu, it says you teach writing through the monster architecture, and memory. And in incubation, you thank your students of many years from your hybrid form seminar, a class which you collectively renamed The Monster. So I was hoping we could talk about The Monster and The Monstrous, how you see it both within incubation, but also when teaching, where a class might assume this figure as its sigil. Let's see. To answer your question, I must cross time. I must fly 10 hours through an azure sky. I must descend and arrive and be in a place that I'm not sure quite exists in the way that it did when I inhabited it. Okay, I'm there in Upaya North or Upaya South to uh, cottages, semi-detached, um, opposite a biodynamic greenhouse on the campus of Naropa University. And generally, that's where I taught, very cold in the winter, windless and rather warm in the summer. I never understood how the other instructors or professors managed to be uh, in environments much more luscious and protected than those cottages. Maybe there was a sign-up list that I missed. Anyway, I was quite fond of these shabby cottages. And Upaya from the Tibetan means path. Um, I think it's the Tibetan. So firstly, kind of memories of teaching. I have memories of just the beginning of that close 
thinking or attention to the axial space between performance and narrative. Actually, now in the present, it's it's what I would call impasse. And maybe the form of incubation is built through impasse itself, like the moments that the vectors were curtailed or the energizing or germinal impulse bled out. Um, it's true that there is a menstrual or uterine uh, context to much of the language when I kind of look back at it, which is different to look at now as I'm through the menopausal transition and so relieved that a cube of like vibrating sharp blood doesn't expel itself from my body at regular intervals. Um, I had such excruciating period pain that when I was giving birth, actually, and the midwife said it's time to push, I remember just fleetingly being so astonished to recognize that the uh, contractions before the, the stage of labor when you, when you push, the contractions of birthing were less painful than my menstrual cramps all those years. It made sense. You are woman, said the home birthing midwife. And I just wanted to laugh. I was very chilled out. And it was the quietest birth, the midwife said, that they'd seen or encountered or dealt with in over 20 years. So I'm sort of like remembering that actually that's how we began to speak in those classes as we kind of entrained towards the hybrid, brought in speakers. Um, or visitors, maybe even a gardener came in once, um, whoever was around really. But we began to think of hybridity not as a composition or an assemblage, but actually to think through the midline. Yes, I'm remembering a visit of Sarah Roder, who led us through a craniosacral practice, developmental movements, pre-developmental movements, her recollections of her, I suppose the story that her mother had told her of her own conception in Libya, in the marshes of Libya, uh, which actually in the context of the recent uh, floods or the unleashing force in those marshes is kind of lands differently. But Sarah Rhoda kind of talked to the class about staying close to the, you could say, not the initial context, but the context that preceded birth itself. And it's interesting to think that our conversation began with May 1968 rather than June 1968. So not what preempts the birth memory, but what are the forces and what other atmospheres and what other weathers and what other landscapes that incubate like the gesture that the heart cells um, take as they first kind of ascend and then kind of settle down, like migration or soft flight, um, swans landing in some strange weirdo lake, which I just saw the other day. Um, just that kind of soft descent, like that's how we talked in that class. Um, and we also had so much movement and built our texts and works from the inside out. So that's one memory. Like I remember a student like lying on her back 
on top of the desk tables and sort of these gestures of reaching and touching. And I, I can't remember why this was happening, but I remember that it was twilight. I remember that we'd been reading Frankenstein. I remember that we were thinking um, about syntax as the place where nonverbal, visceral time might most accurately or specifically be recorded. So that's that's one kind of type of memory, but perhaps to come to the present, like that axial space, now I'm reading as, as void or impasse, as I said, and I'm really curious about the ethics of impasse and what it what it would be to commiserate with impasse, um, the degradations of impasse, um, what can't be reversed and yet which cannot be acceded um, or accelerated, what can't be recalled, um, actually, even though you're the one who constructed, you know, this kind of narrative possibility. Uh, David, what was the last part of your question? You asked about like the teaching. Also just um, about the monster as a figure in general. Yes. Yes. The monster is a figure in general. I'm also recalling that overlapping that time, I was also, I also had a practice as a body worker. So my speciality was orthopedic, soft tissue, body work. But also, I think maybe because of the way that I presented or that I was or that, you know, the body that I'm in, in the space that I was in Colorado, um, maybe people didn't entirely know that. And so sometimes people would ask me to speak to the dead. You know, can you speak? Can you speak to the dead? Maybe that's not how they would have said it. But my practice was sort of like on a spectrum, like very gentle touch. I had clients who were in the end stages of their you know, life cycle, also working with newborns. And then, you know, many people, I realize now who were perimenopausal, I didn't understand that then, I don't think. Um, but lots of women experiencing um, transitions of different kinds, bereavements, but also hormonal transitions. So I began to integrate Ayurvedic treatments as well. And yeah, but also, the two things I was really good at, like weirdly good. I once worked for a biotech company um, for their physical therapist. And my only job was to kind of basically dig my elbow into the QLs, the quadratus lumborums of a variety of computer software programmers <laughs> on the diagonal between Boulder and Longmont. Like it was a very, yeah. wasn't that much. It was like 20 seven dollars for like 20 minutes of like holding this and I could kind of code it on the soap chart and get reimbursed but I really had a skill and I still have that skill of like just that that way of engaging the tissue beneath the discordant or like um crystallized and it's not, it's not the right words but like the fascia 
that had become bonded, like through post for postural reasons. And similarly, the levator scapula, which we know as the crunchy kind of places in our shoulders. Uh, so, yeah, I had these kind of skills. And I think some of the cyborg and monster thinking came from that time. But if I have to think of assimilation or what it is to, I have to think actually of being in Boulder, Colorado, and the, the commonplace instant of entering a room in which often I was the only person of color, like if I have to think of my colleagues um, or other faculty, not always, but often, um, mostly because I was coming from a bit north to teach and, the, you know, dropping my son off at school and sort of hurtling through the door, whereas most of the other faculty seemed to live like on Pine Street where the Mork and Mindy house is, or was it Spruce? I, I don't know. To generalize, it was many people were kind of strolling over to the campus, whereas I had to drive from about an hour north because the rents, and this is 1999, just before I started at, at Naropa, I lived across the road. The landlord said the rent's going up from, I think it was 800 to 1,900 for two months, and then it will be 2,300. So I think at that time, it was it just kind of shot up Google bros were about to gather in their techno covens and it just became hard to live in Boulder. So I was commuting in and, you know, also having my bodywork practice. So if I have to think of entering those rooms and those spaces, which, you know, over time also kind of extended or expanded to other kinds of community spaces in the experimental writing community, I remember the feeling of not not flinching, but freezing, almost like the middle of my body had to become a kind of metal, kind of abdominal and breastplate, like, I don't know how to describe it, a compression, maybe a flinching, but there was a metallic quality to it. And in this other kind of life, I was spending so much time cross-fiber friction, um, you know, working with pressure points or kind of working with others to release those patterns of uh, rigidity. So to me, the cyborg is rigid in the sense that the imprint of assimilation is the preemptive deflection of all possible touch. Mm. But if I have to think of the monster, the image the image comes from the work of Anna Mendieta, which I'd seen in its complete form during the making of Incubation. So oh my God, 2004, I can't quite remember, but there was a retrospective in Des Moines, Iowa of the complete work, including her final work, La Hungla, The Jungle, are these charred tree trunks um, with markings on them. And the work, blood tracks, um, the silhouettes, um, in ways that I don't think back then was so much in the consciousness of um, artists and writers in, you know, these kinds of experimental environments. It, it had such a profound impact on me that to answer the question, what is a monster? Like I see, you know, the blood on the thighs. I see the hands dragging the red down. And some of that imagery is certainly there in incubation. The monster cannot conceal the fact that they are dripping and oozing from the inside out. That thing 
that we might call a hybrid work has begun to fail, not at its seams, but somewhere else. There's a bleed, it's internal, and it's this um, ex-sanguine occasion that constitutes the monstrous for me. And it's monstrous, I think, precisely because it produces shame. Imagine being a girl in a white silver chemise. It's your uniform. Um, imagine that nobody has told you a story of the body over time. Imagine that you stand up and from the waist down to the backs of your knees, um, your white suit, as it's called, then is red. You know, you've, you're having your first menstruation and that is girlhood. Um, these were the kinds of stories I grew up with. Um, yes, patriarchy, it's the thing that's both inside and outside your house. Um, but I'm particularly interested in the embarrassment of being exposed to others as having bled, mm. you could say. I'd love for people to hear one paragraph from the coda in the UK edition where you dedicate the book to all the monsters. This book is for all the monsters. This book is for anyone who did not discover until it was almost too late that they were beautiful in the eyes of strangers. This book is for anyone who came upon their origin story in a book of fairy tales in a public library. This book is for anyone who burns to write but does not. This book is for anyone whose idea of a good time resembles a vector but also a kite. Imagine the blue sky and the cut grass of the kite string glinting at dusk. You're on the rooftop. This is childhood. This book is for anyone who, in the middle of their childhood, had the sudden thought, I'm no longer a child. This book is for anyone who left their birthplace for reasons they could not control at the time or reverse. This book is for anyone who made home in the end out of what it was. A glimpse of the horizon four times a year. This book is for anyone for whom this horizon is dreamed or recollected a hot green line embedded in the art they make. Something a reader or observer would not notice or perceive unless, like the artist, they repeated their walk through the space in which the art was presented or made. Well, there's this great introduction that's only in the U.S. edition by Yun Song Kim, and I, I particularly liked her meditation on gender in it, where she says the switch between she and he from she to he is assumed yet never clarified, so much so that when the narrator states, I was a monster, but the surgeon said no, it is perhaps best to imagine Lalu as she imagined herself, a monster duplicate within himself. Lastly, when genders are queried, it is for divine creatures alone. The narrator states, we were Hindus, but what is an angel in retrospect? Whether red or white, it is a man in a dress with a different gender. 
And when you were on the Ethereal podcast, and I asked you how you identify yourself, you said, as a waste product of society, alien, monster deluxe, failed British novelist, failed middle-aged housewife deluxe. When I think about this monster, <laughs> it's yeah. failed Asian American housewife deluxe. Yeah. I would like to clarify. Okay. Yeah. When I think about this monster pre-surgery, really being a man in a dress with a different gender and all the modes that you name and present yourself as a failure within society, novelist, housewife, both suggest a way of being that both can't be contained or defined, that fail within the existing containers and definitions. And in that spirit, we have a question for you about form from the publisher and editor, Andrew Willey. Hello, David, and hello, Banu. And thank you, David, for inviting me to Between the Covers. I'm a big fan of your podcast, and I'm also a big fan of Crafting with Ursula. And that all seems like quite a magical connection right now, because this time last week, I was just settling down to watch a performance by Banu based on the new edition of Incubation, A Space of Monsters, um, which was to celebrate the award of the Space Crone Prize for writing inspired by and dedicated to Ursula K. Le Guin. So uh, yes, that little magical connection, I think, sets us up here. Uh, because today we're here for you, Banu, and I'm beaming in from West London via Portland and back to Cambridge. And I want to ask you a question. And that question is, when is the piece of writing finished? Um, I know that you have an interest in unfinished writing. I know, for example, that on your blog, the blog that you used to run was Jack Kerouac, a Punjabi. You made a statement, something like, I write books before they are books. And I know that blogging, um, the, the sort of spontaneous and immediate form of blogging um, was very important to you as a writing practice for, for many years. And I also know that you're a big fan of Natalie Goldberg and that you take on board uh, Natalie-inspired writing practice at, um, frequently and you know using prompts or writing freely, uh, following the mind wherever it goes uh, in for particular blocks of time. I also know that you've extended this creative practice into other forms. You often um, use drawing uh, in many different ways, for example, inspired by teachers such as Linda Barry. Um, you, you draw mandalas. Sometimes you use tarot as inspiration. Uh, sometimes you use stencils, I've just discovered this week. But also, and importantly, um, I'm now I'm thinking like an editor or a publisher. Uh, among all of this creative output, you also produce books. I know that How to Wash a Heart was written very quickly within a short block of time. And I also know, for example, that Incubation, A Space for Monsters, is a book that's gone into two rather different editions, or at least the second edition has some significant extras. Uh, so at that point, I wonder, like, how does Did a Finished Book become a different finished book? So Natalie Goldberg says she knows where she's going when she writes a book. And I just wondered how, among all your 
many creative practices, which also include teaching, which also includes performance. How have you known where you were going when you have decided to create a book? And I want to ask you, when is the piece of writing finished? Andrew Willey, with whom I was just this morning texting on a group thread with my sister about our autumnal Instant Pot breakfasts. Um, This is really quite exciting. I knew that the vertical interrogation of strangers was finished when I stated its title. I was giving birth. I was in the phase of birthing um, that is contractions. And I think I've, I've told this story, I think like maybe eight and a half times now, but basically we had a landline that was affixed to a wall and it rang and I you know, was laboring and the phone rang and I answered it and it was Patricia Deansfree from Kelsey Street Press. This would be, I think, January the 5th, 2001 at 4.32pm. And she's like, oh, it's Patricia, it's Pat. Need the title, going to press. And um, it just kind of burst out of me. And then it was done. And also a few hours later, baby, but I remember that felt complete. The second book that I began that didn't come until later, Humanima, A Project for Future Children, that one was really clear to me because I'd had a lot of doubles. You've sort of invoked doubles, David, throughout this conversation. Um, And I noticed there was a bifurcation between a wolf girl and my father or a story about my father as a goat herd. And then this sort of like owl girl appeared, like my son's maybe fingerprints, butter smears in the bathroom mirror. I don't know. He was like four. So there was a smudge and um, there was another creature. And then that creature began to speak. I remember like those, those doublings which perpetuated the book. But uh, I remember coming close to the end of Humanimal and one day opened the newspaper or Uh, read on the internet story of a a young woman who had emerged from a jungle, a Southeast Asian jungle, um, covered with scratches, uh, feral, had been living with the animals in the forest. And the minute that I read that, I understood that um, because the doubling had appeared beyond the book, that the book was complete. Um, so that I really remember. With incubation, it's something uh, very different because it kept like dropping from view. So it won, some, I can't even remember what it's called, New York Press Book Press. I don't know what it was, but um, at that time, Talia Field was in Boulder and she took me out to lunch one day and I suppose I've been a bit haunted by this conversation, not in a bad way, but she said that her friend had been, she couldn't say who her friend was, but her friend was a judge of this prize. 
and that I'd won the prize. But when the friend had submitted it to um, the publisher, the publisher didn't feel it was a novel and there had been a row, the judge had dropped out and the prize was uh, dropped. Uh, that year there was only a poetry prize, but no prose prize. And that was, I think even, I think this must've been like 1999, something like that, or two, early 2000. And it sort of like went on and on like that. So I have felt a lot of relief with incubation that doesn't have a sort of like a horizontal story or a spatialized story or a sagittal story in the way that the book that preceded it, The Vertical Interrogation of Strangers, or that followed it, Humanimal, The Project for Future Children. I, I can see how those works like came to be and it's everything to do with the relationship with the publisher as in fact the experience with this book is, but this one was like, it would just, um, I don't know, I don't know where the book would go. A friend came over when I was, you know, typing it up when it was going to be published by Leon Works, uh, was looking at something, pressed something, the whole file I'd been working on for a year just disappeared and it could never be retrieved. And then I had just two weeks um, to rewrite Otherwise, the book uh, would come out the following year. Um, so there was something about like the order of printing. Um, and so there was a kind of a, a rushed kind of attempt to complete. Um, and maybe that set the tone for everything that came afterwards, because Kate is right. I was a new mother and, um, I don't know, newly divorced and sort of like, I think I had like five teaching. Yeah, I had five. I was teaching at Front Range Community College, Naropa, Goddard, my bodywork practice, and, you know, writing gigs here and there and trying to kind of um, just get it together to try and sustain uh, works. And so the experience actually of completing was everything to do with anxiety and kind of rushing a bit and working from notebooks and just putting things together precisely because they'd vanished or had been um, depleted by embarrassment. I don't know. Yeah, by this time I was well into my, I think I was in my mid-30s, that kind of age, and nothing much had happened. Like writing didn't equal uh, love. Writing was intensity, tablecloths, um, cafes and relationships, friendships. The confusing thing is then when incubation was was dropped from the press that was publishing it and then was the kind of final copy glamorously arrived in the post wrapped in plastic, I was confused but also very interested to learn from the moment in which a book that I thought I had finished was also finished. Um, and at that time, I really wanted to go to New Jersey, the Jersey Shore, and just maybe kind of do some kind of performance with the book there, which is how the book opens, a Ford Cortina ruptures the Atlantic foam, and uh, Lalu uh, begins their journey. But I didn't do that. And instead, this kind of bifurcation, you know, poetry, prose, um, and now these two versions, which depend upon the relationship with a publisher. I, I can say it has felt very 
satisfying. At least I'm I'm looking at this UK version and hope to think the US version MG said is coming out like this month. I think when I see that, I'll feel, I don't know, relieved or some kind of relief. Mm. Um, and that's like a that's like a problem. Like why um is it mildly intolerable to have published something that's no longer an artifact? Let me let me maybe ask this question around form in another way, because thinking of this, that this book that is singled out for acclaim and yet rejected by the same prize gets published and then nearly dies and now comes back on both sides of the Atlantic. Thinking about its failure to be a novel, I want to ask you about your relationship to the novel form because nearly all of your books place themselves in relationship to it. In Schizophrene, perhaps most famously, you say that for years you were trying to write a novel on the partition of India and Pakistan and its transgenerational effects, and that when you knew you had failed, you tossed the final draft into your garden where it was buried in the snow over the winter, and then in the spring you recover the fragments and begin using them to create what we now know as schizophrenia. In Vertical Interrogation of Strangers, you say, quote, I'm writing this on my side at noon in the basement on the carpet in front of the space heater, hmm. page 79 or 80 or 81. I have not said one thing about what actually happened between us. Sometimes I think that all the books about what actually happened have already been written, that the only book left is the book of a refugee who has never left the country of her birth, written on the torn-out pages of old comic books, Batman, Bunty, Tales from the Crypt, with invisible ink, and held with shrimp tongs above the burner, which reminds me of the account of the mother in the same book who couldn't bring her diaries from Pakistan, so burned them, and carried the ash in lacquered boxes, or the grandfather and how to wash a heart that burns his notebooks, then scrapes the ash into a hole he could button up. Or in the preface to the Ignota book on Hildegard of Bingen's writing, called Unknown Language, where you say, the lore of the fragment was what brought us together, like wasps licking a wooden frame to build their nests. Each time we heard the story, we took some of it back in our mouths, like damp chemicals or pulp plus saliva, then spat it out to fill a hole or make the walls stronger. But perhaps most notably is in Bon and Banlieu, whose alternate title was Bon, Notes for a Novel Never Written, where you say, I wanted to write a novel, but instead wrote this. I wrote the organ suites, the bread-rich parts of the body, before it's opened, then devoured. I wrote the middle of the body to its end. And also, the project fails at every instant, and you can make a book out of that, and I do, in the same time that it takes other people to write their second novel that is optioned by Knopf. You've called that book not a novel, but a novel-shaped space. 
And I would love to hear more about your relationship to the novel and its normative existence and, and what it means to not write one, but to do something entirely different, but within a novel shape space. Thank you, David. Andrew Willey noted mandala practice. And so every day I begin my day by opening a notebook at this table where I'm actually talking with you. And I draw a circle. I actually thought about ordering a compass, but I've become quite adept at making, you know, the circle. And then I fill that circle. I try not to think too much, a scribble, a score. And sometimes I combine that with my meditation practice um, or I'm simply breathing or I'm following the line. And this has been going on maybe could be like almost, I think, 10 years or more. Um, and so in the first instant, I'm really curious about the mandala as a cartographic void and also like no time, this fathomless zero and what it takes to populate that space. And with the proviso and the way that we're talking about biologies, that they might be deflected. And so this is um, a population that's um, also, it could be an abortion on a mass scale. Um, it could be a fleeting population. And by population, I mean a population of like colors or marks or shapes. Um, it's different every day. But one of the things that I like to do is to kind of, when I finished a notebook, is to look back at the mandalas and to kind of note what's moving or kind of the change of direction, if you like. So that's one thing I'm kind of learning about narrative time or a way of like producing a sequence that is non-successive, that doesn't kind of sustain itself through touch, um, but rather a sort of conjoined, not perpendicular, but just these kind of moments that the images, no, they don't repeat, um, they don't recur. And so what are they doing? How how is it that the different parts of these uh, void uh, constructions, these mandala figurations, how are they speaking to each other and how are they how are they speaking to each other across the space of this notebook and this other kind of like intensely private or kind of prosaic, you know, writing that's kind of going on around them? I've really been noticing that, like what it takes to sustain a practice and what it is to open time each time you sit down at this table in the country that you were born in. So that's one thing. And maybe it kind of answers Andrew Willey's question. And that I know something is complete when even the traces or the imprints or the kind of waste products of an image have been um, absorbed at last into the paper or um, the kind of other kind of writing that might be a caption or, you know, a list, the kind of notebook writing that I was speaking of. It disseminates and does not recur. To me, like, 
that is the limitation of the form of the novel as it's built through images or even scenes. Um, I could never find a way not to um, bring value to images themselves. I was told from an early age that I had a gift for uh, creating vivid language. Um, and so it's precisely like this weird gift of feeling colors and being able to write but never paint them um, that kind of gave me my life as someone between a notebook and a book. Great. But actually, I found that in my life as it was lived, um, the books and forms that I were writing did not do what I hoped they would do. They did not dislodge or move from my blood or the blood of my community or the blood of my varied communities, um, those many kinds of blood, the rivers of blood in Opal, um, it didn't do anything other than coagulate um, the instances and occasions as a form of intense and beautiful repetition. And so for me, that became the impasse. I did not know how to write um, myself out of the book. And in fact, books were stabilizing trauma or timed trauma in ways that were so different to what was happening through bodywork or in my own idea of what does it mean to be human in the present time with the non-identical and beloved others. It wasn't working out, David. Um, and so I had to find another way. Well, the last guest on the show, Kate Briggs, her, her main character, Helen, in her new book, The Long Form, time travels with her baby and interrupts E.M. Forrester's lecture about the novel oh. given, to an, given to an audience of all men with her baby in her arms. And, and one thing... Briggs, however, likes about Forrester's speech that she herself employs is his notion that the novel operates in two modes of time, not just the sequential mode, but a more important one, which I think you just spoke to, which is measured not by units, but by intensity and how intensity can affect our relationship to our experience of time. And I feel like your books operate in this mode. And one of the ways they do is with color Lalu means red, and the book is saturated in the blood of birth, of menstruation, and also, I think, the specter of sexual violence. But you also said in a long-ago conversation on a podcast called Radio Albion that your own family name, Kapil, means healing through color and light. So we have a question for you that is both related to color and to yet another novel that perhaps haunts in your work in some way. So here's a question from Sophia Samatar. Hi, Banu. This is Sophia Samatar. I am so excited and happy to be talking to you and to be able to ask you a question. I am holding my copy of Incubation, A Space for Monsters, and it has a bright yellow back cover. And it makes me want to ask you about novels on yellow paper, because I can remember you talking maybe years ago or writing on and off about this idea 
of a novel on yellow paper and possibly about the book, The Secret Garden. And so I wondered if you could talk about this and where possibly you see a space for monsters within the novel on yellow paper or within The Secret Garden. Thank you. <laughs> this is such a delight. I cannot believe this. Sophia, I say hello to you in the podcast. Wow. Um, wow, I've never had an experience like this, David. It is, um, I don't know, just really shocking. Sophia, how you remember this? Well, that's what happened in the moor outside Eugene, Oregon, which is, I was standing there with an enormous uh, stuffed, I don't know what it was, was it a bear or unicorn, one of these like large, puffy, life-size creatures, someone had, was it a, a horse, had given me as a gift um, before I left New York and somehow had thought I should bring that and a backpack full of yellow paper. Um, and so that's uh, was really what I was in Oregon to do, but things had fallen apart. I uh, had no money. Um, and um, yes, set myself up in the Eugene Public Library. Sorry, I had about like $40 or something. So it was enough for like a couple of nights at um, a youth hostel where there were two bunk beds. And I just thought, I'll come up with a plan in those two days. And so, yeah, that was a, a long time kind of idea. And it came from meeting an amazing woman called Ruth Godwin and her husband, Dennis Godwin, in London, in St. Johnswood, long, long ago. I had been in a relationship with their godson he went to the bathroom and they were like what are you doing with him he is promiscuous he is a terrible boyfriend um why and then when he had returned to amsterdam note to self i could right now be running some kind of tango cabaret club um in the netherlands but no i am here that's okay um they invited me to dinner by myself, and I think I had just won this sort of like strange competition for the free master's degree in obscure college in New York. And this was when I didn't even fully comprehend that New York was a state. Um, maybe I thought I was going to Manhattan and was quite surprised to discover things like Binghamton and Rochester and Buffalo. Uh -huh. So it was it was like that. And they sat me down, and Ruth um, was friends with Michael Hamburger, the translator, and they had an orchard with trees that had been planted by all of the translators, you know, of the 20th century. I'll never forget it, and I don't know how to find my way back there. And they said, we've invited you to dinner. This was in, like, their grand kind of city house, and I'd never been in a home like that, like, pushing open an indigo gate embedded in a yew hedge to enter this dark kind of deeply posh and shabby, gorgeous, dimly lit home. 
a long table. They boiled some kind of chicken. Dennis had commanded the Ethiopian army at the age of 16, like disturbing things. Um, the kind of people from another era that I'd never met. Um, but they said, we feel that you are a writer, or at least Ruth said that to me. And um, they said, what are you writing? And I think I was so nervous, much as I felt nervous to do this podcast, because I find it very uh, difficult to remember that I'm a writer, perhaps because I have not properly lived as one for most of my life. But I burst out, um, I'm going to America, as I would have said then, to write a novel on yellow paper. And that sort of like brought it into being, uh, culminating in a show at a space called Salts in this some kind of art world, European art vortex. And you can kind of Google it online and there's all of the yellow paper and notes on yellow paper um, that I sent to the curator, whose name I think, was Harry Burke, and it was kind of installed as a solo show with my kind of wretched trousseau and notebooks galore. So that is a story about yellow paper and the secret garden. And as you asked that question, Sophia, I saw in my mind the final image of the film Pan's Labyrinth, and that to me has been a very haunting image and I'm, I'm trying to write it. I haven't found the form, but in the interim, Sophia and David and Andrew and Kate, um, I just recently, just casually completed a short novel called Promiscuity, a novel from life. And contrary to everything I've said on this podcast, <laughs> it is a very basic and linear retelling of my history of sexual touch uh, from a young age um, up to the age that I am now, or I should say just before. And this is a sort of analog to incubation. Maybe it's the actual coda um, or diptych moment. But um, yeah, the paper was not yellow, but I did, it's true, write it on my side. So I wanted to take these questions of failure and form into questions of home and belonging, mm -hmm. which is one of the strongest through lines across your books. In your coda to the U.S. version, you talk about how Lauren Berlant's writing about you, which appears in her coda of her book called On the Inconvenience of Other People, how it helped you with how to structure and represent incubation to the public. In her coda, talking about you and also about the work of James Elroy, which she looks at together throughout, she says, this coda is about being and writing with unbearable objects, not by becoming hard like them or soft and empathic compensation, but by loosening them up and becoming loose with them, if not like them. And also, she says, these writers decide to take on what they do not want to accommodate or adjust to. The object is already in them, 
as a structuring fact of life, but they can't bear to live with it the way they know how. Their aim is not to get to the root of relation or to dominate knowledge, but to affect the infrastructure in which relation forms. She also says, these artists become different by the failure of their tools and the transformational infrastructure relies on being on the verge created by continuous proximity to that frustration. Mm-hmm. So, so reading this, I feel like the unbearable object or one unbearable object in your case seems to me to be the absence of home as a fixed place, either as an origin or a destination. Your work almost always exists in a triangulated, in a triangulated way between the UK, the US and India, not just leaving England and then Lalu discovering the racialized and gendered violence of the US and the precarity of its capitalism with lines and incubation like possible occupations not requiring proof of health insurance or a permanent address. Number one, translator of the INS homepage for Punjabi taxi drivers in New York City. Two, can't think of anything else. And with India, I think of the gang rape in Ban and Banyu, but also in Humanimal, your book set in India about the girls supposedly raised by wolves who may have simply been neurodivergent, but have been othered and subsumed and consumed by the narrative of the missionary who quote-unquote saves them. Here in this book, you're an outsider too, and you're seen as an outsider. And there's this sense of nested narratives with the French film crew, with you watching from the margins and the folkloric theater troupe that's reenacting what happened to the girls there's always, instead of the fictive spell, an observer voice, a voice at a distance. And I wondered about home and hospitality and immigration when I think about you and performance and memory, especially given that you've said that performance is where you incubate your material for your books. But you've also said performance is a way to replace the reality of foreign landscapes say the landscape of Boulder when you were living there, with a memory of a familiar or a familial one, and that you felt like when you returned to England, a lot of your performances were falling flat. And in one, yes. inter- and in one interview, you say that back in England, you feel less of a need for installation or performance because for you, it's a diasporic form, a conjuring of an elsewhere. So I don't know if this sparks anything for you regarding home or the impossibility of home or this idea of Berlant of writing with an unbearable object, but becoming loose with it rather than becoming like it. Oh, thank you, David. I'm in awe of your, Mm. of your questions. Um, You're one of those people, like when you talk, image environments appear. So I've been trying to kind of track these uh, scenes that start to open up, um, which are also memories um, and impressions. So thank you so much. It's so generous the way that you've kind of prepared and attuned to the work of um, this, me over here. Mm. 
Um, firstly, you know, Lauren Berlant, um, wow, the night that Lauren had passed, I dreamed of them. They came to my dream, I suppose, and said so clearly, I'll have to look back in my notebook, but it was either, it's like a command, and it was as powerful as the dream of the owl that I told earlier a luminous dream in the sense that it woke me up. I recalled it. It was so powerful. And Lauren Berlant said, Banu, uh, live the most extraordinary life. Something like that. Or Banu, have the most extraordinary life. It was just, um, you could say, a command, but also a reminder. And I've been trying to hold on to that. And hearing this language makes me um, feel so sad, but it's not possible to talk these things through in this form with Lauren anymore. Anyway, much gratitude to Lauren Berlant. I'm trying to kind of connect to the question, but maybe I can kind of respond through performance. And I realize, which gives me hope, that some of like my... Uh, interviewing vibe from like two years ago or one year ago as you kind of maybe are drawing from interviews or other things I might have published maybe not that they're out of date but that things have shifted um, in part because the autumn equinox portal has just opened and I refuse to have another late autumn or winter in the United Kingdom that feels as if like a copper or tin lid a saucepan lid has just been put over the sky mm. and lowered like directly onto my head i mean i have full-on protocol i'm out there at 5 50 um barefoot on the dew etc robin blackbird ravens you name it whatever's out there so i'm trying to kind of stay in touch with the increments of light and petals and um, the variation of this season, and it's going well. But I think part of that was certainly the shock of returning um, to England and not like the West London um, of my upbringing, but rather this kind of other part um, of England and a very different society. But I will say um, that something that's really helped me, which came from a Luckily, health insurance persisted for a year into the pandemic. I still had my Naropa insurance. So I had therapy on Zoom with a wonderful somatic uh, therapist in Boulder, Jody. And one day when I said to Jody, I'm like struggling, I'm struggling to kind of take this place in or to adhere to the surfaces of the world. Jody said, Maybe it's not so much that you have to expend so much effort in absorbing the environment that you're in or the surfaces, but rather you have to let it absorb you. And that was a reversal that really helped me, but it also actually impacted like what it was to reread incubation and to think about that let's just call it primordial joy when I first kind of arrived and that feeling of possibility. Um, so it took a long time to kind of uh, re-narrate that ideal like freedom, that kind of escape from 
um, patriarchy deluxe um, that strangely was more concentrated in my kind of immigrant or diasporic community in the UK than it even was in India, let's say. Um, so that was a problem that in song kind of touches upon in um, the preface, the new preface. But actually, what really strikes me is how differently I feel about performance. It is true that when I returned to the UK, my performances fell flat um, in this country and perhaps other countries pre-pandemic because I could not, I think, feel my heart or the inside of myself I think I was slightly numb, just just the shock of the darkness and the rain and the weather and also kind of a testament to how like connected I had become to so many others in the United States. Um, the Midnight Supper Club with Chong Tran and MG DeFriends in San Francisco, um, lukewarm cappuccinos with Melissa Buzio and Cafe Reggio in Greenwich Village, like all of that, and then the exhaustion of reading in a magazine in a dentist's waiting room. Oh, in order for someone to feel like a friend, you have to spend 500 hours with them. So like David, we've just spent one and a half hours with each other, <laughs> 498 <laughs> left to go. I'm ready. Um, yeah, well, it's exhausting. Um, you know, I began to meet poets and or meet kind of old friends again, which was so touching. Like when I won those prizes, it was people I, it was only because of that, that people I had not seen or talked to for years kind of got in touch because I left the UK before email. Um, so all of that was great, except I understood that I would have to drink at least, you know, 400, you know, more bloody flat whites before feeling at home in this new community. Anyway. But actually, the thing that's really changed is, is performance. While it is true that performance in the United States, like, came out of teaching, yes, like, strong interest in revision or rewriting as writing, which I think is a mantra or chant that appears in incubation. That was like, you could say, my pedagogy. It was just really uh, curious about tracking you know, these voids or the places where the work stops or evaporates and um, waiting there. So perhaps that was contemplative practice, like the training in tolerating these moments and expanded practices that uh, were listening practices, but also tactile practices. Um, what is it like to build something in a space where something needs to be built in the context of shelter or even the elaboration of a space. And like, why are we elaborating the space, which is like language from design, but also uh, nest culture, narrative and nest was the name of a, a seminar that I taught for some time. And I think at that time, like drawing in like the theories of Elizabeth Grosch and, you know, Maybe theories that I don't kind of live and work through now, but back then it was clear that as we stage the hybrid or the novel or the work and we reach the limits of our own capacity to bear form or amplify form, like what can we do? 
And then there was an amazing seminar where I think I had been reading Bergson and all of this. I have a friend called Andrea Spain who like runs um, like basically a dog rescue in Mississippi, Starkville, Mississippi. She's also a post-colonial professor um, out there, a film professor. And so she'd been taking seminars with Liz Grosch and reading Bergson. So I'd get all this stuff from her on the phone. And so just from like that ultra theory time and kind of taking it to like a fiction class, let's say, um, we'd kind of sample or kind of take like a scene that we couldn't work out. And in small groups, like we'd kind of move the work forward and then reverse it like very slowly. So it was like kind of a fusion of like what I was kind of training trained to do as a body worker, but kind of training others, you know, to kind of build gesture. Um, and that was all about like retracting, you know, let's say um, the area of like the shoulder or the arm, like the whole arm, like really kind of spiraling like an arm or the thing that we might call an arm, like back, you know, towards like the sternum. And then through shaking and other movements, like extending that gesture, like how do you kind of remind the body of new possible gestures? So reversing time, moving it forward. And there were these small performances that happened in that seminar. I think it happened during the summer writing program um, that really moved everyone's work along. If I'm remembering it correctly, please, if you're listening to this podcast and it was shit and nothing ever happened, um, do get in touch. A, a refund of eight <laughs> Snickers bars is forthcoming. All right. um, that was so useful, and that happened through teaching. And then when I kind of couldn't get beyond the part of ban where the girl is crumpling, so I was kind of studying and thinking also and teaching through architecture and thinking about chronic experiences, diurnal, daily um, but also acute experiences of like racist affect, like 1979, 1983, 1987, all these kinds of years. And thinking about what would it be, what would an anti-racist like architecture be? In fact, I, I wouldn't have used that language. I've never used that language. But I had the idea of like walls that could also crumple, like when that flinching happened, um, what would it be to build something that could receive that flinch as crumple? And then I suppose where a person could rest or even be enfolded by something not exactly inflatable, but something that would both compress and protect the inner life, which is to say the internal organs, but also the sense of like being there at all. So anyway, I couldn't get beyond this certain point in ban. And that's when I turned to performance in order to substitute a landscape and to stage it as balcony in the middle of my friend Sharon Carlyle's installation. She'd been clearing some earth in the garden to um, build a female Buddha on her side. And so... Yeah, all of that made sense as a way to make contact with an environment that was um, 10 hours away, 5,000 miles away, and that I hadn't really 
experienced for many years beyond like fleeting visits to London on en route to India to see my mom. Um, but now I would say thinking of the performance that Andrew mentioned, which was hosted by Prototype, the incredible Jess Chandler, um, and working with, okay, the most magnificent human beings, um, Blue Pieta, dramaturg, choreographer, performer, Yasmin Rai and Nina Harris, performers and musicians, um, poets also. And this strange thing happened, which is I'd been drawing in my mandala like the presence of the heart healer. So um, anxiety, like all of the kind of chronicities of like unbelonging, the word I'm trying not to use anymore. And so there was something and it said like, bring in, imagine the presence of a heart healer. And suddenly like I began to kind of imagine or portray like I suppose in my imagination or during these meditations the presence of an ancestor from Syrapinto comes the language an ancestor is someone you can still still tell a story about Syrapinto is um, my co-teacher with Matt Colan and Eleanor Georgiou at the University of Vermont where we teach together in this extraordinary program anyway so bringing in the presence of this ancestor and then in my mandalas, I began to draw these conjoined forms. And one day I realized it was the outline of Gangotrima, who would have been my father's grandmother. And he had stories of lying in her lap as a toddler, I guess. And people would come from all over India for her to, you know, in English sort of like lay hands on them and, you know, can't ask him, he's no longer here, but his stories are that as he lay in her lap, and my father was like a ferocious, like headmaster, um, mustachioed like person um, and not prone to mystical language, but he recalled um, the play of light, rainbow colored light, light of many colors, like around her hands and her arms, and I think he told me this when I first came back from the States, like in the 90s and said, you know, I've been so broken open in this new place and the poetry that is there that I had begun to see this violet light like all around my arms and hands. Um, so I think I'd asked him about it and he had that memory. So in my mandala, I'm drawing like, the outline of this sari and and then in the middle there are these kind of chaotic like gesture posture sets and I realized I was drawing the heart healer presence um, holding this trauma body and then in the performances um, you know created in collaboration with Blue Pieta and Yasmin Rai and Nina Harris and I, when I say collaborated in a way like like in band, like just because something is hybrid doesn't mean the different parts of it have to touch. But like the images are one of the culminating images, which derives actually from a pre-image, Mendieta, but also our shared history. So Blue Pieta, Hashim Qureshi is from a Pakistani background and Yasmin rise from a Punjabi, you know, Indian background on the other side. And they are much younger than me, but we share 
and inculcate and receive near identical imagery that are everything to do with the unbearable sexual thought that arises whenever a person might repeat the word partition in conversation. And so the final part of the performance is that Blue is inserting flowers into uh, Yasmin's sexual like parts, you can say, and I am behind and I'm holding her head. And it was only, you know, a week later that I understood that the performance that had happened, like it wasn't in the notebook, but it was in performance that this image was finally disseminated. It's very, very beautiful and it's very different to what happened um, before. And this is something completely new that depends upon being with others. And it is diasporic, although we don't often talk about it, except sometimes when we talk about like the images and memories that each of us had during rehearsal or during performance. And I'm just in awe of like what it has been like to, to work with them. Yeah. Staying with this new form of performance. I I love your performances and rituals from the past. For instance, the class that I took with you called writing a sentence in the air on a windowsill or at nighttime when it's raining and you're not at home, which opened with an Alejandra Pizarnik sentence. I have, mm. I have walked in the unknown rain. Unknown rain. And then you had us doing a series of practices using pigments that we brought, in my case, blackberries, coffee beans, and charcoal in, in relation to both gestures and sentences from our own writing notebooks, which we then placed into a matrix, or a Goddard College podcast where you consumed a rose and then you regurgitated the rose before giving the reading and talk about how your mother, when pregnant with you, would sit under a rose bush and that given that you lost your accent when you were sent to a school in the English countryside, you were using the rose to help retrain your mouth for lost sounds. Nice. But perhaps the most notorious ritual relates to the trauma of your childhood, which you recount in m- multiple books, of living next to a member of the National Front who used to empty out the delivered milk bottles of his brown neighbors and fill them up with his own urine your neighbor making chai or pouring it over their cornflakes and running outside to vomit in the garden next to yours, and your performance, your ritual with urine in one jar and milk in another where you pour the urine, which is really lemon ginger tea steeped overnight, into an empty jar and then pour the milk into the jar that's just been emptied, and then you drink it for the rest of the performance. You say that the audience often looks away as you do. And yet <laughs> and yet you tell us in the UK coda, one audience member wrote you a decade later with a request for a blurb, yeah. recalling the feeling in their own body when you drank the urine. And that transference of what you did on stage with the performative urine into the body of this person in a way that endured for them as a somatic memory 
makes me think of something you say in the U.S. coda about the inventor of mirror box therapy, where if you were missing a leg and he placed the mirror box where the leg once was so that it mirrors the intact present one, the person's phantom pain would be relieved. So both of these cause real effects in the body. One transfers your pain from your past, from your specific childhood, into the blurb seeker. And the other, using an image, gets a phantom pain to disappear within the same body of the person experiencing the pain. So in that spirit, we have a question for you from the dancer and choreographer you you collaborated with, Blue Pieta. What? Hi, Vanu. How is this happening? Um, I'm currently sitting under an oak tree as I ask you this question. So in incubation, my feeling is that you tend not to name experience, but in t- instead use language as a means of somatically embedding the reader into experience, which creates an embodied response. And this relates back to your work in performance. And during our collaborations, an idea that you consistently refer to is this idea of performance as incarnation. And I was wondering if you could talk to us more about what that means to you and how it affects your body of work and your life. Thank you and lots and lots of love. Ah, Blue, I love you. Please go to Burley and Fisher Books in Haggerston promptly because there awaits you the imitation of a rose by Clarice Lispector, which I had glimpsed. And it was not the actual rose, but it was one. And I don't know what's in the book, but it reminded me of your uh, housewife scenes and our mutual desire to one day make the acquaintance of Pedro Almodovar. Anyway, what a joy and what a shock. I can't even believe this podcast reality um, for which I am foregoing the Michaelmas term meet and greet at the Faculty of English at the University of Cambridge. But actually, I often feel too shy to go to those gatherings, so it's okay. Um, amazing. I am in deep shock and I don't know how this is happening. But I will re- I will also respond. All right. Um, and what is such a pleasure about this podcast is all of the memories of teaching that have like you know come back or that time at Naropa which actually sort of like came to a close in a difficult way or a strange way or the way that everything um, closed its beak circa 2016 meaning as in so many communities and in so many places and on so many campuses and uh, on the ground of so many universities all over the world, the walls of the university became the thing that we were thinking about. And when I say the word walls and the word institution, of course, I think of and honor the work of Sarah Ahmed. But in this case, uh, we had a protest against racialized and gendered instance of harm um, that had circulated upon the campus and students led a movement, um, built an encampment under the aforementioned tree where Allen Ginsberg gave his William Blake lectures. They built an encampment and 
this was a moment of rupture um, completely. And sometimes if I think of my last four years at that university, in fact, you know, when you introduced me, David, and don't go back and correct it, um, but actually it was 16 years in the Jack Carrick School of Disembodied Poetics. And actually after that four years in other departments, I stepped out of the creative writing space. And really that's, I think, the thing that showed up in my work as a curiosity about hospitality and corridors and the chronicity of entering spaces in which everyone else is white. I remember a student um, who wasn't white coming to office hours and saying, Banu, do you ever feel when you enter a room of white people that they will kill you? Or the voice of another great-grandmother, but on the maternal side, avoid spaces in which white people congregate. So that was the context. And it was difficult sometimes in the same way that it's actually been difficult to talk about writing and to remember my life as a writer in another country. It's been, it's been difficult to kind of remember teaching or to think about teaching precisely in a space that I can't easily, I don't think, re-enter precisely because of the kinds of ruptures I'm describing that have been overwritten um, by many other gestures. And um, um, so I, I don't say these things out of an interest in kind of returning to that time. But what I'm noticing is like the intense kind of gratitude that I feel for those years of like incubating performances, thinking, writing um, slowly, writing fast, many mistakes, many, many, many mistakes, but that was the incubator. And so the question of incarnation comes back to a class I co-taught with Melissa Buzio one summer called The Charnel Ground. And I had been writing and thinking on my blog about ring cell. So after a cremation, the ash is studied. And what is in the ash? An eyebrow, an eyelash, look up. Is there a rainbow, a rainbow on a mug that says Oregon in 1990? You look around um, and you study these moments, which might be remains, um, crystallized uh, keratin or other artifacts of bone, um, but also in the sky, in the environment around the pyre or this you know, place where the body has been burned. And it's these signs uh, that are then read as the potential of a next incarnation. And so this is how I trained myself and this is how I worked with others to really at the end of a performance to build it in time to even write, um, but also most importantly to analyze uh, the detritus, what's left on the floor, the stains, the regurgitated like rows, um, and maybe, you know, just to take a photograph, but somehow to remember with the kind of sensation or feeling that the next work or the next gesture of the work or the next performance will come out of this. So blue, like we didn't gather it, 
but Sarah Shin of Ignota uh, and Nisha Ramaya, an extraordinary, um, incredible vocalist, performer, and poet in the UK. I noticed that afterwards they gathered the ruined, trampled, intact carnations. And both of them sent me images, or Nisha sent me images of the carnations that had been taken back to their own homes. And also like the bed sheet that Jess Chandler had bought from her child's bedroom to cover the um, crate that had been created blue by your housemate. And all of this is so interesting. I remember just after our event and after our performance, looking at that bed sheet, uh, which was light blue. And I noticed that it seemed like, I haven't talked about this with you yet, but I noticed that it looked like a cloud. And then I noticed the displacement of the red flowers and the way that they were rehoused on a windowsill in someone else's home. So I wanted to think with you about clouds and maybe we should go to the National Gallery and look at the paintings of John Constable. Um, and I want to think with you about the red flowers and what does it mean to really follow red flowers everywhere but what if they're gone and how do we make our way to that windowsill and with our fingertip write a sentence in the condensation above the dust? Well, I want to take Blue's thoughts about incarnation into questions of the body in relation to the structural. It's interesting that Yun Song Kim in her intro doesn't compare incubation to Kerouac, but to the Green Book, the book written as a guide for Black travelers through segregationist states, that Kim places incubation within the tradition of guide as warning and suggests it's indebted to books like the Negro Motorist Green Book. It makes me think of how your books are always looking at how structural forces are somaticized. For instance, in an event, which I think you just referred to for Ignota, you, you quote your mom remembering what your great-great-grandmother said, avoid spaces where white people congregate. And when I think of Boulder, one of the whitest spaces of congregation, or other places you've taught, um, Goddard College or Vermont, um, you, you've taught in many very white spaces, what you said in your blog, when my own health practitioner examining my carotid scan looked at me and said, is there any area in which you are experiencing chronic stress? In your blog, you say, I lowered my head, tears spilling from my eyes. My workplace was a racist workplace at the same time that it was a magical workplace. Yeah. And in How to Wash a Heart, where you've received an email from a cardiologist, an Indian doctor in Ohio who writes poems and wants you to blurb his book of poetry. And one of his areas of expertise is the immigrant heart. And he mentions a medical diagnosis called broken heart syndrome or, oh, yes. or takutsubo cardiomyopathy, which is a Japanese word for octopus trap where the heart gets stunned during acute emotional stress, which affects the heart muscle and pumping capacity in a way that can actually kill you. 
or schizophrenia, which is looking at the higher incidence of schizophrenia in the Pakistani and Indian diasporic communities with an epigraph that looks at the intersection of migration and mental illness. And then thinking back to this notion of your great-great-grandmother, you said in a Hong Kong literary event that the stressor for you wasn't so much migration in your mind, but ethnic density, the stress of moving into a largely white space. At the performance that is part of your incubation of How to Wash a Heart, you you read the cardiologist's email requesting a blurb yeah. telling you about the telling you about the octopus trap or broken heart cardiomyopathy. Then you tear your book in half and drench it in blood. But in the book you say, in writing these poems, I diverged almost instantly from the memory of the performance. And all of this, in a way, brings me back to the notion of performance's reversal and then elaboration in order to create a new space, or what Berlant says about you. The piece lays out rituals that allow for return to be a return not to the incursions of the world of the real, but to a breathable space of figuration that refuses the supremacist act's aspirational sovereignty over the concrete encounter. It is realism for the non-sovereign. And I guess this is, this is where my leap comes in, because it makes me think of your interest in the work of Peter Levine and the idea that gestures that never get completed get stuck in the body. In his book, Waking the Tiger, he says, Although we rarely die, humans suffer when we are unable to discharge the energy that is locked in by the freezing response. The traumatized veteran, the rape survivor, the abused child, the impala, and the bird all have been confronted by overwhelming situations. If they're unable to orient and choose between fight or flight, they will freeze or collapse. Those who are able to discharge that energy will be restored. Rather than moving through the freezing response, as animals do routinely, humans often begin a downward spiral characterized by an increasingly debilitating constellation of symptoms. In speaking about writing and about bodywork, you've used similar language, I think. For example, to release the crystalline matrix where memories are stored. Um, to identify or locate the unfinished gesture and help to finish it. And so I guess I'm wondering, not just about unfinishedness, as like Andrew was curious about, but I'm also wondering about if you feel like you're returning to incubation and returning to England, if you see this as part of completing a gesture, if there's any release or moving through a frozen response from this return. Wow. Thanks. Thanks, David. I actually haven't returned to Peter Levine's work for a long time, in part because I met him. He came to Naropa and gave a public lecture. Um, but I think it was kind of in that kind of three years between 2015 and 2019 or somewhere in those uh, years at the end of the first 20 years of this century, that there was a kind of a conversation about the whiteness of that community um, on plus, like 
I sort of like maybe stopped kind of avidly reading polyvagal theory or, or I, for the first time I began to think about like this other discipline or kind of non-workplace, you know, as a private practitioner, you know, I began to think like, oh, this is complicated too. Or like these theories of the body are coming from also a place of whiteness, you could say. Mm. And at the same time, I had such a feeling of recognition. When I heard that phrase, um, a friend, Laura Vickers, visited, I think, the monster class and was kind of uh, leading us through an experiment. She trained in that tradition, somatic experiencing, and was a trainer. And so we were going through a practice of orientation, which is also a practice, I think, of impasse. And what is it to kind of have other possibilities just before that kind of frozen structure? begins to freeze, I suppose, freeze again. So a bit complicated with somatic experiencing. But I do feel, actually, I'm just back to the performance with Blue and Yasmin, and that that completion actually does not have to reside in my own like capacity, but it's something that's shared And what I noticed in the performance as I watched Blue's choreography um, is that I tried to be as present as I could, like in a context where we're kind of surrounded by the people who love us, the people we love. Even my son, who's just moved to London, was in the audience with Andrew Willey, but also so many strangers. And we said afterwards, it felt so different to our performance earlier in the year, an earlier version in a space called the Horse Hospital, one of London's earliest punk venues, I believe, uh, which had been the incubation book launch. And it had gone so well, we were suddenly in this other festival culture, repeating the performance, but it was so different. And I think it's because we'd, I don't know, we we were just with each other inside the time of the performance. And yeah, something happened that night. And I think it is very much to do with movement and trembling and gestures and things completing, but not in the place or in the medium that one ever thought they would. And then also, if I have to kind of think about sexual thought, like for me, the thing that has trapped all of my books has been the absolute impossibility of writing lucidly in the manner of Annie Arnaud, whose books I've been reading wildly since um, Andrew Willey began sending me WhatsApp messages of the Fitzcarraldo editions. Mm. Um, And I sort of like discern that I cannot actually write the body without the prospect of uh, punishment in some sense or it's like a big difference like between what I can do and maybe what another kind of writer could do. And that performance actually at the ICA was in the context of a curation on the work of Kapiaka. And I think I talked about that at the time. And I'm reminded of a re-performance of a work by Valley Export in which she has the hole cut in her jeans and exposes her vagina But when I had to do it, I constructed a cone and inserted a thread 
into my vagina. And then I think I really had the sense that if there is a viewing or if there is an exposure, I have to stagger it in some sense um, or build in a rough focus because it's not going to work to simply open my clothes. So it's also kind of related to nudity and the body and I suppose uh, safety um, in a cardinal way. So yeah, I'm really feeling it, everything we're talking about. And, you know, I just completed this long work, which is actually all of the thought that kind of stopped every single book, except maybe How to Wash a Heart, which is in its own category. And so that is really interesting. I didn't put that together until this podcast, but after the performance came, this weird, very fluent writing. And yet it is not writing that I could ever publish. And so I'm already thinking of a performance and I'll have to have a cup of tea with Blue and Yasmin shortly to analyze um, the prospect of staging aspects of this work. Or, you know, I thought I could have one reading at midnight and like read it and then we could burn it and then that's the end. So these are my ambitions, David. (laughs) Well, thinking about you just saying that you can't write the body without the punishment of the body. It makes me think of how in, in both editions of the book, you state that you wouldn't have the Donna Haraway epigraph if you were writing it now, because you wouldn't think of Haraway today as who you would look to regarding which bodies are conceived as monstrous. And perhaps this is related to the, you're moving away from Peter Levine too. But instead, you provide another epigraph that at least aspirationally suggests the completion of or the liberation from a gesture, I think. And this is an epigraph by Sarah Pinto, who you've already mentioned. Who would you be if you no longer told the story of your betrayal? Um, Yeah. Who would you be if you no longer, what is it? Who would you be if you no longer told... Or I would say retold the story of your own betrayal. Yeah. Yeah. That is it. Yes. (laughs) Talk to us about that question, which feels like a question slash challenge. Do you feel it is an animating force for you now? Yeah. It it has everything to do with home and homecoming and home being and landscape and time and all of this life and it's just another it's another possibility that I never conceived of or considered and it is liberating me certainly but with the proviso to think of something else Cyrus said this is all in this PhD we've started which is basically at the moment me on zoom uh, with Matt and Elna, who I've already mentioned, but just like listening to the things that Syra says, like in the moment. But another thing that Syra said, we were teaching a course on um, the poetry of Nicanor Para. Well, Syra knew that, um, knew those poems, um, but we were teaching together on poetry and installation. Um, maybe when I first kind of was 
transitioning from you know my experience at Naropa into uh, other kinds of work, other kinds of teaching. And um, Syra had been a poetry student in the MFA at Goddard. That's what it was. And so went on to kind of be this extraordinary leader in the field of organizational change and the kind of person who like shows up when an institution has ruptured in some way and just profound healer who is very, very, very a part of my heart, this person. So someone asked Syro, why is it that she did this MFA in poetry before kind of moving into this other kind of work, which she'd actually been doing with um, youth and gangs in the Boston area. And Cyrus said to get to get the artifacts of colonialism out of my body, that kind of idea of a book of poetry as the thing that can do the work of dislodging internalized or crystallized conditions also really impacted me. And I think that's what I've been doing with Promiscuity, a novel from life. I just suddenly kind of got it that even though it is the case that there is another possible kind of work that I could be doing that is intimately related to the questions of betrayal and what it would be not to replay or to stage those instants of decimation uh, recursively and uh, with intense affect all the time. Yes, I can see that, but I, I think this is the missing piece. This is what I've been trying to write in the form that I'm calling a novel, but actually it turns out to be a form, which is to say when I first came back to the UK, certain memories that I can't easily talk about, but were also the reason that I left, you could say, though I did not know I was leaving at the time, but I, I did leave and I did return, but I did leave. Yeah, all of that came rushing back. And I think that's what stopped me in my tracks, you could say. And that's what's begun to I don't know, find its way down through my nerves and blood into this, I think you call it like the ground of this place with also the proviso that I was not sure that I wanted to make contact with the bones and the residue and the dead of this place, which happens as soon as you make the connection between the vagus nerve and the mycelial network. I felt in my imagination on my sofa in my you know, apartment at Churchill College, the epicenter of the colonial archival, one of them, Margaret Thatcher's handbag, like, you know, two minute walk from where I rest my head every night, Enoch Powell's papers. I wasn't sure that I wanted to have that relationship to the ground of this place, which was an inhibiting factor. Mm. Um, but as I've said, through um, simple practices, I've begun to kind of build, um, I wouldn't call it a relationship, but I've become curious about the dirt of this place. And I'm kind of like a couple of inches in, uh, in my like establishment of my own floating route here. And so, yeah, writing this kind of very kind of linear work that could really 
have been placed in a form that I began to fill in uh, when I returned to the UK. And with my horror, once I'd submitted like the initial form to the, not a company, but like um, the forum that would receive such a form. And this is a form related to um, sexual violence experienced in another time, an earlier time. I just, at the moment that I understood that a kind of next step would be to involve the police or the law, or that there was another layer and then the pandemic, I sort of like abandoned that process. I wrote back and said I did not want to continue. It's through a government portal. So in a way, it's like filling out that form again in the form of a novel that I've managed to accomplish over the last two weeks. And yeah, I'll I'll kind of consider, you know, what it is to have this like outside of my body and also to resolve you know the problem that arises on page 11 of everything I've ever written and has allowed me to create this kind of notebook genre or you know just to sustain it in my own way of course there are so many other participants of notebook genre or inventors of notebook genre but in my case I stop because I'm horrified I cannot write what I cannot speak, what I did not live. And so let's see, this is a podcast about the body and it's a podcast about sexual thought. This is a podcast about the relationship between violation and narrative. But more than anything else, this podcast has it's done something. And maybe it's these questions that came from people that I care about, whose writing I care about, who I know, or maybe haven't even met yet. Such delight and so many memories that returned. I'm just so grateful for this experience, David. It was really unexpected. No reason to have been scared of a podcast, <laughs> after all. I'm so glad you pleased in the end. It's been such a great time together. Um I was hoping maybe we could go out with a reading from Incubation. Um, could we hear the short chapter, Don't Panic, as a way to, to finish? Don't panic. There in Yellowstone, picking your way along a boardwalk between the creamy blue explosions, or there in Manhattan, drinking your coffee on the steps opposite Café Reggio, like a cut price Louisa May Alcott, Zigzagging across the country, extend your hand in gratitude for the free baguette, but do not meet the baker later for a dip in a gurgling spring, even if it seems powerful to you. The way he extends his flowery, meaty hand in the forest. Avoid men. This is not the time to be involved with men in any capacity, even on an uncle and niece type basis. Even if your uncle is a mystic who leaves home with nothing in his pocket, Returning with a golden deer, you don't need a patriarch. You need the ocean. I think this is what hitchhiking is primarily about. It is about the sea and the dark corner with the tiny unstable table at which you sit, looking down at the pink waves. Perhaps you are finally at Big Sur, crushing a capsule of orange powder onto the tablecloth. I don't know what it is, but I see it. I see your 
intensity. If I can see it, then others can too. So keep your wits about you and wait until morning before you head down to the beach. It's all ahead of you, crossing the street to the parking lot at dawn and then the water. It is a rival in reverse to approach an ocean. These words mean nothing. That was a test, immigrant. Don't panic, immigrant. There are places to curl up beneath a cliff in a cave and by morning you will be covered with starfish opening and closing all over your body. Encrusted, riveted, bright orange. What will you do? What will you do with your new body? What will you make it do? I made it stop, but that was a decision. Beatrice glowed a deep green from the highway in Nebraska. I said stop, and they stopped, and they were angry, but I walked across fields to get there. The Beatrice downtown, keep walking, Lalu, is what I said to myself in my exhausted state, and that is what I say to you, hooting like an owl, or honking like a pig, or purring like an alley cat with tufts of ginger fur. In June, you got itchy feet glancing up from the conveyor belt at the high window on the night before full moon, which is the most beautiful night of all, more beautiful than the weather. Am I right? Inside every hitchhiker is a memory of home or factory that haunts them on soft days. At the highway exit, the hitchhiker is all bones and a red t-shirt in the ruby red taillights. Another car. I said stop and it stopped, but don't get in. I'm writing this guide exclusively for you, little mother, tiny beast. Thank you. Thank you, Banu, for mm. today. That was amazing. <laughs> I, 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 I don't know how you accomplished that. I don't know how you did that or how you even, I don't know how you did it. It, it was amazing to hear those questions and um, wow, the care that you, just when you quoted from the blog in particular, which is a dormant form that was closed because of like the sexual consequences of having such an open place in which I described writing from life, writing in life, this was too exposing. I had to close it because um, uh, of the consequences of that openness. And yet that was how I love to write more than anything else. So thank you for remembering um, that writing back to me. And um, I don't know how to get back there, but I will never forget this experience. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you too. We've been talking today to Banu Kapil about her latest book, the reissue in the UK and the US of Incubation, A Space for Monsters. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, 
makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. For the bonus audio archive, Manu contributes an extended, robust reading of many things, reading from and discussing everything from Annie Arnault to writings from her own notebook. This joins many readings, craft talks, conversations with translators, and more in the bonus audio archive. Every supporter can join our brainstorm of future guests, and every listener supporter receives the supplementary resources with each conversation of things I discovered while preparing for it, things referenced during it, and places to explore once you're done listening. Additionally, there are a variety of other potential gifts and rewards, including the bonus audio archive, but also the Tin House Early Readership subscription, getting 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public, to a bundle of books selected by me and sent to you. You can find out more at patreon.com slash between the covers, or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team, Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogie in the book division, Beth Steidel in the art department, Becky Kramer and Jay Nichelle in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the summer and winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank past Between the Covers guest, poet, musician, composer, performer, and much more, Alicia Joe Rabins for making the intro and outro for the show. You can find out more about her work, her writing, her music, her film at aliciajoe.com. A-L-I-C-I-A-J-O.com.